My name is Wade Bryant. I'm going to be uh, kind of filling in for Mike today as he is gone celebrating his oldest son, Caleb, graduating from Ranger School, which I, uh, after seeing that he lost 25 pounds, was like, I should go to Ranger School. You know, like, sounds like a great idea. Thanks, babe. Isn't that cool that I make my pregnant wife carry out my table for me? Um, well, you know, I, uh, we are actually um, doing a series in Philippians, and I thought, honestly, after today, um, that I, I might change to just talk about the flood in, in uh, Genesis, but I decided against it because this series is one that has already, it's only been around for a couple of weeks that Mike has been in Philippians, but it's already challenging me. So if you want to go ahead and start turning in your Bible to Philippians, um, and it's called Keep Dancing. Moving with joy through the rhythms of life. And, and I, I'll just be honest with you, I have a, uh, a love-hate relationship with dancing, okay? If we can put it back on that, that slide up there, guys. I have a love-hate relationship with dancing. Um, I, uh, I grew up thinking I was a pretty good dancer. Um, I always, my parents had an old record uh, player. Um, some of you under... I guess 25 doesn't, don't know what that is unless you were a hipster and you bought one. Um, but it's, they had this old record player and they had Michael Jackson's, um, one of Michael Jackson's records. And I would, I would sit there and I would dance to Michael Jackson, you know, all hours of the night, entertain my parents for a while. And so I always thought, man, I'm a great dancer. They're entertained, they're laughing. But laughing, I guess, when you're dancing isn't always a good thing. But whenever I met Brooke, I, uh, I found out soon as we were dating um, that this girl like, was a keeper, and I needed to do everything I can to keep her like, with me so I can marry her. So I pulled out all the stops, man. And so I found out through conversation that she really liked dancing. And so I was like, well, cool. I'm a great dancer. So this is like a match made in heaven. And so I start uh, looking and researching um, some dance lessons for a date that we're going to go on, just to impress her, do something that she loves, be intentional in our dating relationship. So, um, so we're there, and she, you know, I'm kind of asking, hey, what kind of dancing do you like? And she's like, well, I like Latin and ballroom and salsa. I was like, sweet, I love salsa too, especially with chips, you know? And uh, so after Googling what all of those words meant and what kind of dances they were, I watched a couple videos of, of some salsa dancing, and much like I did when I first uh, went skiing and I watched a video of people skiing, I was like, I got this, right? Which is very foolish, <laughs> all right? So I watched some salsa, I got this class, I get ready to go take her out, and we go to this thing, and man, it is a train wreck, okay? I find out pretty soon into this date um, that that this kind of dancing, which I'm really good at, okay, like wedding dancing, um, is not the same as this kind of dancing, okay? So um, they look pretty similar to me, um, but it's not the same. And so what, what kind of transpires out of all of this is I'm going and I'm getting frustrated because I'm competitive and I like to win and I like to be good at things. 
and she is like a pro. So the instructor sees that she's a pro. So he starts using her as an example for the rest of the class. So my date is stolen. I'm feeling really terrible about myself. And all of a sudden I'm getting jealous that this guy is like touching my girlfriend. What is going on here? And so it ended up being our, like one of our only fights that we had while we were dating because of dance, all right? And I was trying to impress her, but dancing for me um, was, was a little hard. And so we eventually, you know, she forgave me for being uh, an idiot and uh, being jealous for no reason. And, and we kind of moved on to our relationship, ended up getting married. And, uh, you know, which we kind of figured it out towards the end because we had an epic kind of wedding reception, all of our dance party. Um, they actually had to get us to, uh, to like, move away from the dance floor to get in the car so everybody could blow the bubbles and send us off, right? Because we were the last ones on, we're sweating, and it was, it was really fun. And, I, you know, I think about this day, and I think about the huge dance party that it was, and it was so much fun. And, I, you know, I think about how when I think about keep dancing and moving with joy through the rhythms of life, I think about this day and how much joy was there, Right? I had just married the woman of my dreams. I had all of my friends and my family around. We're dancing. We're partying. It's a lot of fun. And I I think about the day, it just brings so much joy. But even before we got married, we we gave vows, right? And and those vows said in in sickness and in health, in good times and bad. And I I think the wedding picture is kind of like our relationship with Jesus, right? That we give these vows when we give our life to him. And when we, when we come to know Jesus, it's exciting and it's fun. And sometimes your family and your friends are there to watch you get baptized. And it's all great. There's so much joy when you accept Jesus into your heart. But what happens whenever things get hard in life? Whatever happens when sickness comes or hard times come, Do you keep dancing the same way that when you first met Jesus? And that's kind of what we're tackling in this series called Keep Dancing. Mike shared a life principle last week, and he said this. He says that joy rises above our circumstances, and it flows deeper than our pain. Joy rises above our circumstances and flows deeper than our pain. Is that true for you and for me? Does joy everlasting inundate our lives to where no matter what's going on, we always constantly rejoice and have joy? All right, turn to your, to your Bibles in Philippians chapter 1. Like I said, we're just starting this, and we're going to read a lot of verses today, 12 through 26, but I'm going I'm to focus in on a couple here. And so, so we're going to, just to give you some background, Philippians is a book written by Paul. And he's in prison writing this book. And if you're like, where's Philippians? Or where's Philippi? Here it is on the map. It's in Macedonia or outside of Macedonia. And uh, right now, Paul writing this letter is over in Rome, which is in Italy. All right, so he's in, in Rome writing this letter to the Philippians. And on his first couple missionary journeys, he actually went by and visited the church in Philippi gained a good relationship with them, wanted to encourage them, wanted to be with them. And so there's this friendship, there's this relationship that Paul has with the Philippians and the Philippian church. 
and he longs to be with them, and he longs to go and visit them. And here he is in prison writing back to them because why Paul was in prison is because he had been advancing the gospel, he had been preaching Christ, and, and, and they didn't like it very much. And so they arrested him in Jerusalem, they shipped him off to Rome, and, and made him wait in this kind of holding pattern until he could get before Caesar and, and learn what his fate would be. And so with this, as he was awaiting trial, Paul starts writing letters to the churches. Because he didn't know if he was going to get out alive, if they were gonna, he was going to go to trial, and they would end his life there. He didn't know what was going to happen. So he starts writing letters like crazy, and the, and the church in Philippi was the recipient, one of the recipients of that letter. Let's read all of this passage together. Hang on, follow along with me in your scriptures, and then we'll get into something else. In verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, but the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. I want to hang out there for a second. This is a really tough kind of following what Paul's saying, that it doesn't matter if they're pre- preaching Christ out of false motives, and it's, as long as Christ is preached. And, and it's, a, it's kind of a tough passage. We're not going to dive into it uh, yet or, or today. But if you have questions about that, I just want to encourage you, email Mike at gracepointchurch.net. Um, don't email me. Um, he is way smarter than I am. So, and he'll take all of your questions. He told me to say that. Um, not really. Let's keep on going. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for, my, for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to, to, to depart, to be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy and in the faith, so that through my being with you, against your, again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. And so Paul is, you know, writing this, this letter to the, to the church in Philippi, and there's a lot in here. We're going to unpack some of this, but some of you, probably most of you, have seen the first phrase, the first verse in this, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a really popular verse. 
And that's going to be a part of what we talk about. So for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can Paul, facing trial, facing maybe death, say, you know what? It doesn't matter because for me, if I live, that's cool because I get to, to live in Christ. But if I die, that's okay too because I get to go be with Christ. So how can he do that? And so this, I think, is a key for, for Paul, and it helps us learn how that we can dance in the face of death, that we can have joy even in the face of death. And so today we're going to kind of walk through a couple things, a couple ways in order of, of how we can dance in the face of death. The first way we can dance in the face of death is this, that we have a change in perspective. A change in perspective. Man, perspective is so key. And a lot of times, you know, like we, we just don't, we, we don't understand some of our circumstances that we're in because we don't have the perspective to, to gain in this. I, I think about when I was a little kid and I used to, I used to go, um, my, I was kind of a bad kid in Walmart. Um, I, I used to go like off, like I would run into Walmart and then I'd just immediately go. And uh, my parents were always like, where, where'd he go? And so, but I learned um, that like getting in the clothes racks, you know, the circle clothes racks was so sweet. It was like mountains in there, you know, because I was a little kid and it, the perspective was like, these things are huge. And so I would do this, but, but what kind of turned into, started off with joy would, would soon turn into fear because I was so short that I couldn't see my mom to try to get back to her because I had ran away from her, all right? I learned how to not do that later. But, but I, I, I had this perspective, and my perspective was like there was imminent doom, right? Like I'm going to get lost in Walmart, and yes, there's food here, but I will not be able to survive long, right? And so I'm looking at these huge mountain racks of clothes, and, and the perspective that I had was was not very good. And so what I would do is I would actually get in the middle of these racks and I would climb to the top of them and I would sit on a clothes rack. Yes, I was that kid. And I would look. And my mom was also very short. Um, she's five foot on a good day um, wearing the right shoes. And, uh, and so, but I learned if I got up there, then I could still see the top of my mom's hair because she had the good old Texas hair, you know, I was sitting up like this. And I could see the top of my mom's hair just hovering over the clothes racks, right? And so I'd be like, oh, there she is. And I would follow. And then I'd jump down and run after her because my perspective changed. I could see her. And so perspective, a change in perspective can take <coughs> these, these things that, that seem like imminent doom in our life and completely flip our view. The first perspective that needs to change is for us to move from victim to victor. <coughs> from victim to victor. You know, we live in a kind of a victim mentality culture. We live in a victim mentality culture. I, I think about all the things going on in this world and, and how it's so easy for us to, if something happens to us, for us to get mad because it affects us, and then all of a sudden we, we're, we're living out of defensiveness, and we're living out of hate, or that everybody's out to get me. And so to understand that we have to first change our perspective from being a victim to being a victor, that in Jesus, that, that there's nothing, there's nothing that will hurt us or harm us that he can't handle. That 
whatever circumstance we're in, that, that he will give us a way out. And so Paul knew this. He said this in Philippians 1, 13 through 14. He said, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. See, Paul wasn't playing the victim even though he was literally chained in prison, awaiting trial. He said, you know what? There's victory here. Because be, as I'm in chains, that people are being bold in their, their proclamation of Jesus Christ and the advancement of the gospel, my brothers and sisters are, are getting bold, emboldened to go and share Jesus with the world. And so he moved from, from where he could play the victim very well. He could sit in his cell. He could sit in the chains and just all day long, think about all the things that, that are, it's wrong with him and how he's upset because he's in chains or because he's in prison. But he has a different perspective and he says, you know what? Actually, because of my chains, this is happening and now I have victory in Jesus. Again, that life principle that, that joy rises above our circumstances and flows deeper than our pain. You know, one thing that, that I see in, in, in Scripture, throughout Scripture, we see people being deceived, and I, I've been deceived, and, and deceit's favorite role is playing the victim. Think about this for, for a second. Even when sin first entered the world, Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent to, say, to, to make things about them, Right? To say, you know what, like I know you got God, you're walking around with God who created everything and he created you and he gave you all of this lush fruit and vegetables and everything to eat. Like you can go ride a lion if you want to and, and go, you know, do whatever you want. All the animals are for you and, and here you are walking perfect harmony with the creator of the world. Pretty sweet life. Communion with God anytime they want to. And the enemy has this way of coming in and deceiving them to making it about them. To say, you know what? You're really the victim here. Because yeah, he gave you all of this and he's talking to you and he's walking with you. But why did he withhold that one tree? You know what he's afraid of? That you would be opened up in knowledge and you would become like him. You're the victim here, Eve. You're the victim here, Adam, because, because God's withholding something from you. And you see this deception go, and they start playing the victim, and they say, well, I want to be opened up to knowledge and, and good and all of these different things. And so they take of the fruit, and sin enters the world through deception and through the wrongful doing of, of making something about us and not about God. The victim mentality dilutes the human potential by not accepting personal responsibility for our circumstances. We greatly reduce the potential to change them. You see, when we focus on ourself and we have this woe is me mentality and we focus on our circumstances and how life has dealt us a pretty bad hand, we get shackled and chained in our hurt our pain, our circumstances. And we won't 
claim victory that we have in Jesus. We won't move forward or do anything to change them or even allow God to change them because we're stuck in our own hurt and our own hangups. You see, Paul, in this setting, he wasn't really in a prison cell necessarily. Some, some believe that he was actually in a house and, and he was chained to a guard 24 hours a day. And these guards, these Roman soldiers, would, would be chained to him in six-hour shifts. And so Paul, pretty quickly, instead of sulking and looking at his chains and looking down at his wrist and, and his ankle and seeing, man, I can't move anywhere. Here I am, just shackled in chains, because that's often what we do. We see the hurt and the pain in our lives, and we, and we just focus on it and focus on it and focus on it until we're shackled to our own pain and circumstances, but he looks at his, and what he does is he gains perspective. And he says, okay, I'm looking at this, I'm following the chain, and oh my gosh, there's a Roman soldier chained to me, and he can't move either. So you know what this means, is I can talk about Jesus all day long, and he can't run. Unless he's going to drag me with him, he cannot run. And so, so Paul, what he does is he starts preaching Christ to the, to the Roman soldiers. And he gains perspective. He looks beyond his shackles. He looks beyond his chains, and he sees the opportunity to preach Christ and to advance the gospel. And that's why he can say in this passage that, that, that they all know that I preach Christ. They all know. There's no doubt in their mind because I'm telling them about Christ all the stinking time. And guess what? Because I'm in a house in this courtyard, I know I can't travel off, but guess what? Other believers in Rome can come to me. And so what I'll do is I'll invite them and they can come and I can still preach and I can still encourage believers because of my chains. It gives me an opportunity, a place where I have been wandering around and going on missionary journeys for years and years and years. Here I am in this place. Some people can come to me and I can encourage them in the faith. And so what happens is we often get so focused on our chains, on our hurts, on our circumstances, that we can't look beyond it and see the opportunities, see how Christ is wanting to use us. So what are the chains in your life that are holding you back? What are the chains, are the hurts, are the circumstances? It might be a stage of life. It might be a disease. It, it might be job loss or a struggling marriage or whatever it might be. It might be things that you've brought upon yourself. What are the chains in your life that are holding you back? I think about my grandfather who is on his third bout with cancer. And he's fought it and, and beat it a couple different times. And, and at this point, it is... It started kind of in his lip nodes, and it's gone up and down his spine, and he's literally hunched over, and he has to sit most of the time. He's 82 years old, and uh, he still, every Sunday, and it, well, actually, every Thursday, and then every Sunday, he goes, and, and he's in the choir still at his church. And, and I asked him uh, uh, about a year ago on the phone, I'm like, Grandpa, why do you keep on going to choir? Like, you can barely stand and you're hurting, and you still go to choir. He's like, you know, I, I did choir all my life, and, and uh, I had to stand in those choir you know, pews, and, 
and uh, stand in line there. But now I get to have a stool. And that's pretty sweet. He's like, I get to sit down and sing praises to the Lord, and I get a stool while everybody else has to stand. How about that? And he's like, this is actually a good thing, because I don't have to stand and sing. I can sit down and watch everybody else struggle through the service as they're standing up. And so instead of looking at his chains, he looks at how he can leverage it and how it's an advantage to him, and how he can still praise the Lord even though he is shackled to a, to a stool. So what are the chains in your life that are holding you back? The second perspective shift that we have to have is that we have to move from worldly to biblical. Worldly to biblical. You know, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are in this world, but we are not called to live like the world. Everything about believers should be that we're countercultural to what the world and how the world is going. You know, it's a hard balance to do this, but, but I think, I think uh, answering a couple questions might help us know what our perspective is. One, how do, you, how do you define success? How do you define success? Think about that question. And what makes you rejoice? At the end of the day, what brings you the most joy and fullness? What are those things? Is it defined by worldly standards? Is success in your life or my life defined by what the world says? Maybe it's a promotion or being promoted over and over and over again, getting to the top. Maybe it's, it's having all the fun toys, right? Like I got a boat, I got an ATV, I got, you know, this nice fancy car. What, what is it? How do you define success and how do you rejoice? What makes you rejoice? Maybe if you're a student in here, it's 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 making that travel ball team or making that band or whatever it might be, how do you define success in your life? And maybe even for parents, their success is that their kid makes that travel ball team. So what does success look like? We have to shift our perspective to to understand what success and what should cause us to rejoice in Scripture is a lot different than what the world rejoices in. And so Paul, in verse 18, says, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. This is after that really tough passage that you're going to email Mike about and ask all the questions about. But he's like, you know, at the end of the day, what really matters and what success looks like to me is that Christ is preached. Christ is revealed, and, and no matter if I'm in chains or if people are doing it for, for wrong motives or if I even die, it's okay because Christ will be preached, and that's success in my eyes. You see, he had a change of perspective, but, but so often we chase after other things, worldly things, and we define success that way. We see in Proverbs that there is a way... <laughs> That appears to be right to man, but in the end, it leads to death. There's a way that, that, that seems right to us. There's success that seems good to us. There's things that cause us to rejoice that sound pretty good to us, but, but in the end, it might lead to death. You know, at Grace Point, if you've been through North Point, you've, you've said these, this phrase here that we have a great commitment 
to the great commandment and the great commission to build a great church for our great God. As long as we're doing those things, the great commandment or commission, commandment and great commission, we are, are building a great church for our great God. You see, that allows us to define success in this way, that we will live out the great commandment, that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if we're following the great commandment, we will be successful that, that we are called to go into all the nations, northwest Arkansas and beyond, to all the nations, to present the gospel to them, to teach them, to obey the things that God commanded us, to baptize them. That is what we're called to in the Great Commission. And Grace Point Church believes that if we're doing these things, that we are going to be successful, that our church will be great. But so often we lose sight of these and we define success in different ways. And we treat the great commandment more like a great suggestion. That if it fits into my schedule, I'll do that. But I don't have to do it all the time, right? I can chase after these pipe dreams. I can chase after these things. But, but the great commandment, that kind of is just extra. No, success is this. Success is defined in Scripture as seeing everyone loving God, loving others, and telling the world about them. Matthew 16 says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, Jesus paints this picture for us that, that success and fullness of life comes through us actually laying our life down, carrying our cross every day and saying, God, what can I do to be successful for you today? The second way that we can dance in the face of death, the first one is a change in perspective. The second one is this, a commitment to purpose. A commitment to purpose. And along those same lines, we have to figure out what that purpose is. What does success look like? What does, are the things that we need to, to, to intrinsically have as we live out our purpose in everyday life? Francis Chan once said that our greatest fear in life should not be fear of failure, but in succeeding at the things in life that don't really matter. Can you imagine spending your whole life doing these things and, 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 and getting ahead and having all of these success stories in your life and then getting to heaven at the end of it and realizing at the end of the day that that didn't really matter. That there was so much more that God wanted for us, so much more fullness and joy that would sustain us through the rhythms of life and we get there and, and we find out that we did not go after the right things. So to, to not have that happen in our lives, we have to ask that question, what is my purpose? What are the things in life that really matter? 
And Paul lays this out in this, this passage of Scripture, and we're going to look at these verses together. The first one about our purpose is this, that, that we have, that it's centered in the advancement of the gospel. The advancement of the gospel, which is Christ's life, birth, life, death, and resurrection. Paul says in verse 12, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me actually served to advance the gospel. He gives us the first key of what our purpose is. That no matter what circumstance I'm in, as long as the gospel is advancing, I am good. The advancement of the gospel. Matthew 24, 14 says, The gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all of the nations, and then the end will come. Our purpose is that we carry out this, the great commandment, the gospel being advanced, and then the end will come. On Wednesday night, we had, we had a, a, the, the student leadership team present the gospel in a creative way. They did a phenomenal job talking to their peers, these juniors and seniors and an eighth grader, talking to their peers about what the gospel is to them. And on Wednesday night, on this stage, they presented clearly that, that we are all in need of a Savior. We are all in need of Jesus and that we have to give our life to him and that he will give us eternity in heaven with him if we would give our lives to him. And so they presented the gospel and on the stage in this room, there were three students on Wednesday night that accepted Jesus for the first time. Give God a hand for that, right? And you know, my prayer, my prayer was that our, our student leadership team would, would, would get a taste of what it means to advance the gospel and get a taste of what true success looks like, true fulfillment looks like, and true joy looks like, and that they would live their lives with the purpose of advancing the gospel wherever they are, no matter what setting they are, no matter what their next year looks like or their circumstances look like. We're called to advance the gospel, and that's what brings true joy. The second thing that, that we're called our, our helps us define our purpose is this. It's fruitful labor. In verse 22, Paul says, if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Essentially saying, no matter, if I'm, if I'm here on earth, you can bet what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be having fruitful labor for the kingdom of God. I'm not going to be idle. I'm not going to sit here and rot in the cell. I'm not, if I get out, going to be like, you know, it was a good run. I had three missionary journeys, spent some time in prison. I think I'll slip into retirement now and just kind of stop working for the Lord. No. He says, you can bet on this. If I'm going to go on living, I'm going to be doing it while having fruitful labor for the Lord. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are God's handiwork or workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good work which God prepared for us in advance to do. You see, we all have a role in God's kingdom. We all have a role in serving the church and the advancement of the gospel in our world. And we're called to have fruitful labor in that. This past weekend... These past couple days, we had North Point new members class for, for uh, several families that were joining our church. And one of the things that they heard in this North Point new members class was that, that they need to kind of find what their place of ministry might look like. 
Because at Grace Point, every member is a minister and every ministry is meaningful. And over and over again, we say, you know what? I know you're going to come worship one on Sunday morning, but you should also serve one. As you worship, we're also called to serve. We're called to do something. We're, we're called to have fruitful labor. And so we define our purpose and we live in our purpose when we're having fruitful labor for the Lord and the kingdom. And that's where true joy comes from. And there will never be a day, I, I, I am convinced of this, that if you are working to advance the kingdom, it might be hard. There might be circumstances and pain in your, your fruitful labor for the Lord. But at the end of the day, you will never grow weary or tired or lose your joy. Because God has a way of when we're living in the true purpose of our lives, of us being a planting for the Lord, and no matter what the storm looks like in our life, no matter what the drought looks like in our life, that if we're doing what we're called to do in fruitful labor for the kingdom, that he will satisfy our souls and it'll bring us life when we do it. The third thing is to help others progress in joy and in faith. To help others progress in joy and in faith. Verses 25 and 26 says this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. You see, true success and true purpose is not how much we can gain and how much we can do and how much we can have. It's actually defined by how much we can give away to others. As we receive more of Jesus and as we get more life out of the purpose that we're living by advancing the gospel and by serving him, as we are being filled up, we are called to be poured out like a drink offering on others and help them progress and abound in their joy and faith. This is a huge, huge key. And this is something that Grace Point is starting to focus on even more, that we have a commitment to this discipleship process. We have a commitment to, to equip, to activate and arm our members, to get you into transformative communities, to do all of these things so that you and me and the staff would not hold it within the faith that we've been given, but we would all transfer it to other people. We would make disciples. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says that just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. You see, our life, our purpose is to again lay down our life for Jesus, to carry our cross daily and say, God, how do you wanna use me? and to give others our life, to give our faith and our joy to others, to help others progress in their joy and faith. And that is where you will see life and life abundant. And this is key. These three things, the advancement of the gospel, fruitful labor, to help others progress in their joy and faith, if, if we're doing these three things, I guarantee you, church, 
that there won't be a day that you're going to walk around, kind of feel like you're walking around aimlessly and asking questions like, well, what am I even doing in life? What, <laughs> what does this life even mean? Because if you get a taste of advancing the gospel to, to this world, you go on a mission trip or global adventure with Caleb Gabrelli or Randy over to Southeast Asia or somewhere else in our world, go to Boston, if you advance the gospel and you, and you have fruitful labor in our church and you find what your place of ministry is in, in God's kingdom and in this church and then you actually bring someone else along in their joy and their faith, there won't be a day that you say, man, what on earth am I here for? And you will have a joy that sustains you. And so I want you to, I want us to end our time on the bottom of your bulletin, there's these three questions. And these three questions, I, I want you to, to really focus in because these three questions need to start being played out tomorrow. And if we as a church would commit to living out these three questions, living in our purpose, I guarantee you the landscape of Northwest Arkansas will completely change. And eventually the landscape of the world will completely change that you define where is my sphere of influence to advance the gospel. Is that my kids' travel baseball team or if I'm on the team, is that my travel baseball team or is that my, my office, is that my place of business? Maybe for some of you, it's your family, your extended family. Where do I have opportunity to advance the gospel? Then finding what is my mission or my ministry where I can have fruitful labor for the kingdom. Define that today. If you're not currently serving in a ministry at Grace Point, this is not a selfish thing as a pastor who, who needs you know, volunteers and helpers and people to, to have a place in our ministries. But for you, if you haven't found that place to have fruitful labor, in ministry or missions, you're missing out on a key purpose of our lives. And the last thing, who can I help progress in their joy and faith? Who's someone that you know that might be younger in their faith or maybe they don't know Jesus yet and you have an opportunity, you have, a, you have a, some time to help them progress in their joy and faith. Find that person. Y'all spend some time, y'all write these things down in your bulletin. Maybe later put that in your Bible or carry that out, take a picture of it. The band's gonna come out and they're gonna, gonna sing over us for a little bit. And I want you to really think about those things, but don't just write them down. Spend some moments right now praying that the gospel would advance in that sphere. That you would, would find true joy and purpose in that place of ministry and missions, that, that you, that God would ordain this person that you can help them progress and he would make it so easy as you enter into this discipleship relationship with them. Let me pray and then you guys spend some time working on those things. God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you define what true success and purpose 
looks like that you give us the opportunity to have joy everlasting when we live for you. God, I pray for all of us that we would live out these three things, that we wouldn't try to overcomplicate our roles here on earth, that we would sit in the advancement of the gospel and fruitful labor and helping others progress in their joy and faith. God, we give you this time. We give you our lives. May we lay it down. In your name I pray.